welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 3, Episode 5. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jenny Hanway, Nutritionist to the Stars. On this episode, we'll be talking about how Jenny assesses the nutritional and lifestyle needs of her clients, the challenges of keeping on your weight loss journey while traveling, why strength training is vitally important to your wellness and weight loss goals, time-restricted eating, habit stacking, self-kindness, and Jenny's own insights from using Cygnos. Now on to today's show. Welcome back to Body Signals. We are so excited to have Jenny Hanway with us today. For those of you who don't know her, she's a holistic nutritionist. She's a nutritionist to the stars, I've discovered, with clients that include members of the British royal family, Hollywood A-listers, Olympic athletes. She's also a personal trainer. She's appeared in Oprah Magazine, Martha Stewart Weddings, Well and Good, just to name a few. Jenny, welcome to the show. Can I just have you follow me around and every time I go into a room, just have you announce me like that? I I would love to do that. Right? Yes. I would love to do that. I, um, yes. So that, that's a little intro into Jenny. I've got a question for you to start sure. out. Um, nutrition and fitness. It seems mm-hmm. like this is your life now. How did you get drawn to this specific field? Good question. Um, so I'm 42 next month, which is tomorrow, I think. Um, and I've been doing this, I've been in the fitness and wellness industry for about the last 16 years. Prior to that, I was a professional dancer. And I think like many of us, many practitioners, many of us in the industry coming into this through my own health struggles was how I got into this wanting to know more for my health when conventional medicine didn't hold many options for me. And when I started to heal myself, I wanted to be able to do that for others. Now, you identify yourself as a holistic nutritionist. I'd love to know how that differentiates from just your run-of-the-mill nutritionist. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. There's lots of terminologies out there, holistic, functional, nutritionist, et cetera, et cetera. For me and my practice, I look a little beyond the food. So I love food. Food is my passion. I love reading my clients' food diaries, choosing what they're going to eat at a restaurant because I love food. And I think food is the basis. But I also, in my practice, look at lab work and gut health, hormone testing, adrenal health, thyroid health, obviously blood sugar health. So it's a little bit beyond just what's at the end of our fork. Excellent. So it's it's very much like the trend we see in functional medicine. It's not just going in to, to treat one specific symptom or try and solve one problem. It's looking at the individual holistically, everything that's going on there in their lives to try and, I guess, would it be right to say uh, your goal is for your clients to reach optimal health, optimal fitness and wellness? Exactly. And I think that is what we're moving towards, especially in the functional medicine community, is we don't just want surviving, we want thriving. And what is optimum health? And what is optimum health for you, for myself, for my clients? And that is always a moving target. You know, everything in our life is changing so much, stress level, sleep, diet, exercise, environmental stresses. So what I'm really learning as I've been in this industry for such a long time and worked with hundreds, maybe even thousands of clients is, yes, we're striving for optimum health, but that's always a moving target. And that's great that it's a moving target. It always gives us something to work towards. 
Okay. I'm going to pretend I'm coming to see you as a client. Now, I'm not a Hollywood A-lister yet. Get out, uh, get out of my room. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, Olympics are probably out of the picture for me. Although I've always, I've said if they made water sliding an Olympic sport, I'd probably gold medal. But maybe not realistic. But I'm, I've, I've somehow gotten an appointment with you. Mm-hmm. What would, what does your intake look like? So when you first see... A, uh, a client for the first time, what's the discussion like? Yeah, typically we've already had some kind of a conversation, whether that's we've met in person, whether that's we've talked on the phone, because it is always a relationship when you're working with someone one-to-one and we have to be the right fit for each other. So if I'm not the right fit for my client, I'm going to send them on to a colleague who I think they would be the right fit for each other. So we probably already had a chat very informally and just figured out that we are the right fit for each other. Then when you come in to see me, that's when we go into a little bit more of an official kind of onboarding process. So that's where I'm going to look at everything from recent lab work to your sleep habits, to your food diary, to your family health history, to your health history, to your environmental stresses, to what your everyday looks like. So really, I'm spending at least an hour with the client in that first session, really getting a deep dive on what's going on with them. I would love to know uh, for that first meeting when you felt like it wasn't a fit, how often does that happen? And what's a typical reason why you don't fit with a particular client? To be honest, these days it doesn't happen that much because I typically have a demographic that I work with and a lot of my clients come to me through word of mouth or recommendation um, or from, you know, listening to me on a podcast or something like that. So there's, there's been a filtering process to start with. Um, but if I work with, I always want my clients to get a great result. And if they don't get a great result, I'm not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. It's not fair on anyone. So this is not taking on everyone that applies to work with me. This is really finding the best fit. And if you are, I'd say normally that there's two kinds of not best fit. Someone who isn't open to my way of working and my practice. And that's absolutely fine. I'm not saying my way is the way. It's my way, it's how I'm educated, it's what I have experience on. So if they are maybe someone looking for a quick fix or someone who just wants them to help them count calories and tell them to do a ton of cardio or someone who doesn't understand the more holistic aspects of health, so managing stress, optimizing sleep, typically those people don't don't come to me anymore because they know what, what I'm about But also if someone has a medical condition or a chronic condition that I don't have the experience to work with and I don't have the scope of practice or they're not working with a medical team, then they're not maybe a good fit for myself. And I might send them elsewhere to a fellow practitioner of mine. Okay, so we're going to rule out anyone who wants that quick fix, wants to Mm -hmm. lose like 10 pounds in 10 days. And Mm -hmm. that's that's the only goal that that's not for you. No. And not probably best for the client, but maybe I guess in your view, they've got to discover that on their own. And it it may be that they, I give them some reason. I say, I don't think we're a great fit at the time. I give them some resources, some podcasts to listen to a book to read, something like that. You know, not just, nope, we're not a good fit. And then maybe six months down the line, they come back to me having tried quick fix things and realize that that wasn't the best fit. A lot of the time, this sounds awful, but a lot of the time I'm someone's last resort. They've tried all of the quick fixes and then they come to me. Ideally, I would get to them before they've done the quick fixes 
and I don't have to kind of undo that damage. But I believe everyone's coming to me at the right point in their journey. In studying consumer behavior and online consumer behavior, I've come to, uh, I've studied dieting and how people search for diets. And mm-hmm. I, I sense this, this tectonic shift that it was really about quick fixes, but slowly it's dying away. Now, it has, it has shifted to different things to mm-hmm. some of the new drugs that are on the market and maybe a quick fix through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like there's been the shift more towards lifelong change, which I'm so excited to see in, in the data. Have you seen the same sort of shift in your practice? Not as much as I would like to but we are moving in the right direction. And I think what I'm seeing, it's rare for me to, for someone to come to me who hasn't tried those quick fixes in the past. So what I see is women who come to me in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they've tried all of the quick fixes and the quick fixes work until they don't. And then the quick fixes actually damage our health rather than improving their health. So the women come, my clients come to me after trying every single diet in the sun. They lost five pounds, they lost 10 pounds, they went off the diet, they put it straight back on again. So I'm seeing that in my practice, but I would love to be having this conversation with you in three years time and then not even doing the quick fixes before they come to me. Absolutely. So let's say I come to you, uh, my, my goal is weight loss. How, how many of your clients uh, are, are coming to you for the, the goal of weight loss versus, you know, optimal nutrition or, or um, athletic pursuits? Yeah, so 97% of my clients wow. are coming to me for weight loss. Now, okay. that then is a conversation about a healthy weight is found by optimizing health. So my job is then to educate them on, yes, we can work on this weight loss and we call it fat loss rather than weight loss because we're thinking body composition. But my job is to educate my client on everything from blood sugar balance to insulin resistance to thyroid health to adrenal health to how stress can impact that. So for me, my practice is weight loss, fat loss is a wonderful side effect of what we're doing. But if the client's goal is weight loss, we're going to work on that and I'm going to help them achieve that. But along the way, we can't help but have them achieve optimum health as well. Got it. So we're having our first meeting and I hand over my food logs, Mm -hmm. my Cygnos food logs. Wonderful. And I'm wondering, what are you looking for in those logs? Where, Where does the conversation start? Yeah, so most of the time I'm actually looking at clients' lab work rather than looking at their food diaries. For me, food diaries doesn't really tell me what's going on in their body. Food diaries tells me how are they used to eating? How much food do they eat at home? How many times do they go out? Do they cook? Is this grab and go food? Do they like to cook? Do they have a family? So when I'm looking at a food log, it's not specifically what they're eating that's that's informing my practice. What they're eating is informing how the interventions I'm going to give them. So probably what I'm starting looking at is I'm going to look at two two main things. I'm going to look at their lab work, but then I'm also going to take that food diary and pop it through some software that I have that will tell me if there's any deficiencies there, macronutrient ratios, all of that kind of thing. So I'm doing two things. I'm looking at the lab work, but then I'm also looking at the client's food diary. 
And we know from looking at research that food diaries are typically not accurate. It's really just to give me an overall view of what's happening. That's that's very interesting. Yes, and and that is that is true industry wide. There um, does seem to be some discrepancy in what we log and what we actually eat. This is something I, I've noticed just stuttering consumer behavior when you mm-hmm. ask them something or ask to report versus actual behavior that can be a, a delta a difference between the two. Right. So lab work first. Look lab work for, first. And, and that gives you the picture for not just nutrition, but then, you know, addressing a bunch of different things like stress and sleep. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's so, it's so valuable. Now, does a client have to have lab work to come to work with me? No, absolutely not. We can create so much change from behavior change, but lab work doesn't lie. And it's a really, really great way for us to, to jump in and start the conversation. And I think a lot of people are motivated by numbers. You know, a lot of people come to me and they've been putting this off, you know, they've been putting off making changes in their health for years. And then they've seen their PCP for their annual checkup and the PCP has said, hey, your numbers are getting into the, you know, scary ranges. We're looking at the possibility of developing chronic disease. You need to do something about that. So whilst, again, I love to get my clients before they get to that stage, sometimes that hard data really, really helps create behavior change. And talking about hard data, how many of your clients come to you with some sort of sleep tracking device? I see that you're wearing the whoop ring like yeah. I am. And, uh, yeah, I have the aura ring. I mean, the aura yeah. ring. Sorry, yeah. no, I've got the whoop strap here. And <laughs> how many of your clients are already wired up and, and measuring things? You know, not, not that many of them. I think there is more shift in, you know, what we would consider biohacking in more of a male lane than there is a female lane. So I think in terms of a lot of them wear their Apple watch, that's really, that's the data piece that, that I see. And they're really all they're tracking is their steps and it's tracking how many calories they burn, which for me, that's not hard, accurate data by any means that your watch is tracking how many calories you burn. So that's where I see most clients come to me is that they're usually tracking something on something like a whoop or something like an apple watch um fitbit is another one but they haven't gone to the next stage and do you recommend that they go to the next stage and and get some hard data on their sleep (sighs) you know actually i don't and the reason being is because i think it actually and i found this myself as well you know we're, we're, we're in this industry but we're still human beings I found it creates more anxiety around sleep quality than it actually improves sleep quality. I am so happy to hear you say that <laughs> because as somebody who's measuring my sleep, you know, mm-hmm. Apple Watch too, yeah, three or four different ways. I've I've built this um, this neuroticism around mm-hmm. sleep. Yeah. And, you know, from these different tools, I get these messages that you've got this sleep deficit and you just added an hour to your deficit. And I'm thinking, man, I'm deeper in the hole. And I start right. to stress yes. about the sleep. And the stress is raising your cortisol levels, which is making you not produce the melatonin. And that stress about sleeping is affecting your sleep. Yes. So I'm, I don't love for my, and I think we... I love the tracking, but I think we also need to pair that with how we feel in our bodies. 
we know when we haven't, you know, we just moved house. It was so incredibly stressful. And I know I wasn't, you know, the cats were in our bedroom. We hadn't figured out our blackout blinds. I know my sleep was off. I didn't need a sleep tracker to tell me that. Now, if I'm having a client who's having real sleep issues or they're having um, dysregulated cortisol, we're seeing adrenal fatigue, then we might want to figure out, okay, when are they waking up or when are they having that disrupted sleep and create the intervention around there. But typically, sleep trackers are not something that I recommend to my clients. Okay. So here I am walking into your office. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to pretend I'm, I'm still a client. I haven't been kicked okay. out yet. Not yet. You, you might be thinking with all these trackers, this guy is not a fit for me. Right. As a nutritionist, I want him out. But yeah, I walk in with all of these devices mm. and I've got charts on my sleep. So yep. what is your recommendation? I imagine the first would be get off the trackers because you're addicted to them. But then in terms of getting good sleep, mm-hmm. do you have typical advice that you... Yeah. So, I mean, even just going back to the the getting off the trackers because you're addicted to them. I am all for any device that helps us create a behavior, a positive behavior change. So if you are someone that comes into my office and you've been using the trackers and you are, and that has helped your quality of sleep, brilliant. I'm all for it. But if it's causing you more stress, anxiety, and affecting your sleep, then I'm going to say, maybe we need to wean you off the trackers. When I talk about sleep, and it's something that I do a lot of um, speaking on, I've spoken about South by Southwest about sleep, it's really the main shift I want people to understand is sleep hygiene and great quality sleep is not developed the two hours or the one hour before you go to bed. It, deve- it Great sleep happens from the moment that you wake up, when you wake up, how you wake up, what you do, and throughout the day. Because if you're trying to bring down your cortisol levels two hours before you go to bed, it's too late. You're not going to get that great night of sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard a number of recommendations. Let me run them by you and see what your viewpoint is on these. Like one is to get some, the more natural light you can get on your eyes during the day outside, Mm -hmm. the better for setting your circadian rhythm. 100%. And that's really essential first thing in the morning as well. Yes. So, and I've also heard that at dusk is also important to get that um, that light on your eyes as, as the sun is setting to, right. to give your, your body's circadian rhythm the boundaries between day and night. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you in my artificially lit office with, you know, all of these lights and everything. My body doesn't have no idea what time it is right now because it's getting all of these lights. We could be doing this at eight o'clock at night and it would still be this light. And all of that would be telling my brain it's time to be up and awake. So really for me, that first thing is telling clients to get some daylight in their eyes as soon as they can. Here in Massachusetts, obviously winter is coming and the days are not so great. So this is at times, um, so for me, first thing in the morning, I'm using a, um, it's not here in my office, it's in the other room, a daylight lamp just to give myself that extra little push because Mm. the days get short here really quickly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we've covered the, the daylight. How about melatonin? Do you recommend that your clients take exogenous melatonin or just rely on the body's own production? You know, my thoughts have changed on this recently with all of the new research that's coming out about the benefits of melatonin almost working as an antioxidant in the body rather than just a sleep provider. So 
I'm going to do everything for my clients to get them to create their own melatonin and have their own wonderful, healthy circadian rhythms. But sometimes with sleep, sometimes clients have so much anxiety and worry around sleep that if we can get them sleeping healthily to start with, then we can slowly come off the melatonin. So I use, personally, there's a supplement I love that is a blend of melatonin, but 5-HTP, some of the precursors of melatonin, not just straight five grams of melatonin, because we know that makes us feel terrible the next day, but it's a little bit more of a blend of melatonin. So it's a helping hand of melatonin, but also some of those precursors as well. So I will use melatonin for clients in short bursts to try and help them really get kind of get back into a sleep routine. Because I think once they know that they can go to sleep and stay asleep, that anxiety falls away as well. I'd have to agree with that. How about um, blue light blocking glasses? Is this a fad or is this something that uh, you believe is valid and is here to stay? No, I think that's valid and it's here to stay. And I think, I mean, we've been, I say meet my husband's a human performance expert. So in the evenings, you know, I have to say we're, we both wear glasses. So we have the lenses, that the, the orange lenses that clip onto our glasses. It's It's not cute in any way whatsoever, but it really does make a difference. But it's not just that for us. We're very you know, screens go down at least an hour before bed. The only screen in our bedroom is my Kindle. So I think it's, yes, blue blocking glasses, but also just training yourself on the devices as well to set everything up, but also just put those screens away two hours, an hour before you go to bed. Yeah, I I think that is a very important suggestion because I think there is, I've heard of some research that's coming out that it may not be the light as much as it is the activating content that people consume right before they go to sleep. Exactly. It's, you know, I, it's funny. I go into, um, I go into colleges and talk to the kids there and they're super fun and really refreshing to work with, but I've got clients, I've got kids in those schools that are, you know, I'm waking up at 3am in the morning. We're having really bad nightmares and you find they're falling asleep to something like the walking dead. You know, or it's even myself. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, but I'm really having that's an afternoon thing. That's not a pre bed thing because you're absolutely right. Yes, the light is part of it, but it's if we're stimulating our brains, our brains are not going to, we can't think that we're going to watch a TV show and then fall asleep into a healthy deep sleep. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I, uh, I've taken up a few practices. First, I've noticed an activating content that can be kind of sneaky. It's not just reading news or a television show mm-hmm. that's really engaging. Sometimes it's just listening to some really good music. And I get so yeah. fired up that the music is so good yeah. Yeah. that yeah. I'm fully awake by the time I finish listening to music and I'm ready to go to sleep. 100%. I love, I'm a huge sci-fi geek. I love sci-fi. And I was reading and for me it's such a treat at the end of the day to have a cup of herbal tea and read sci-fi but I was finding if that's the last thing that I do before I go to bed my brain's super stimulated I'm having these crazy dreams so what I do now is that happens straight after dinner but then I do my gratitude journal and my meditation and then I fall asleep so it's not that we can't do the things that we love it's just about shifting them slightly yes and I do the same thing I um I do the nighttime meditation. I also start dimming the lights mm-hmm. so that um, it's, uh, 
especially when the meditation starts, I've just got one light on in the corner of the bedroom. So it's very, very dim. And I feel that that's really helped to acclimate my body and get it ready to sleep versus having, you know, bright overhead lights, even if they're not blue light on uh, right before I go to bed. Exactly. It's this, again, it's this holistic picture of what are the things that are energizing and activating us. And those things are great first thing in the morning, but in the evening, we want to bring everything down. So we're readying our body and brain for sleep. Yes. I want to switch gears a second. Jenny, I know that you, uh, you've got the pleasure of living in both London and Boston, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So you travel a lot. Since COVID has started, a lot of us haven't been traveling, but now as it's kind of fading into the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. hopefully... We're starting to think about travel again. This makes me really nervous because that's when I gain the most weight. Mm -hmm. I think I legitimately believe that when you're on business travel, any food you eat, is there's a free pass. (laughs) So on JetBlue, they come by with this snack tray full of carbs and refined sugars. And then there's business dinners. And if not that, then it's room service to prep, you know, and I'm not even Mm -hmm. like enjoying my meal. I'm eating my meal while I'm working. Right. I wonder what suggestions you have for the traveler. Yeah. As that becomes more prominent in our life, hopefully going forward. I think, and and you kind of put it the right way is that we think that when we're traveling, we have free reign. It's like the person that we are in our everyday life, we stop being that person when we're traveling. But, why but, is that? Why, why is do we that? feel that way? <laughs> I, for me, I feel like, you know, I don't want to go on this long flight. So I kind of deserve the snack. And it's weird to think uh, that kind of maybe goes to a deeper issue of, you know, how you think about food. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've, I've often wondered why that is. Why do we eat so unhealthily when we travel? It's, I mean, we, 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 when we travel, especially if we're doing short haul flights, you know, three hours, we don't need to be eating for three hours, you know, but you see people get on the planes and, you know, immediately they're in the snacks and the bag of candies and they have the pretzels that come around and, and, and we wouldn't do that in everyday life. We can go from lunch to dinner without, well, we should be able to go from lunch to dinner without having to snack. But there's something about travel that makes us go, well, I'm traveling, it's fine. And here's the thing, once in a while, especially if you're on a vacation, it's not the end of the world. But if you travel even once a month, that is going to have a real hit on your health. So a lot of traveling is trying to think about how would I behave in normal life, but also controlling the controllables. This is what I say to my clients all the time, control what you can. If you're on that flight and someone comes around with pretzels, you can say no, or you just don't eat them. However, if you are at a business dinner and you haven't chosen the restaurant and there aren't that great options, okay, maybe that's something that you can't control, but the next meal you get back on track and you go and have a smoothie or some eggs or something for breakfast. So if you, I always say people to think of their health as a sliding scale. It's rarely going to be a hundred and we definitely want it, don't want it to be below 50, but let's say traveling, you have a meal out with clients and you can't choose the restaurant okay, that next day you're in the gym, you're having breakfast or you're fasting until lunchtime. It's so interesting you should say that because I identify with that scenario where you get the um, the business dinner, you didn't choose the meal, there's nothing healthy on the menu. But sometimes I feel like, okay, I was on this healthy streak, but eh, okay, 
I broke it. So it seems like now what's the point? And then the next meal is unhealthy and the meal after that's unhealthy. And then suddenly, you know, I realize I've gained several pounds and I need to get myself mm-hmm. back on track. You know, it's, we, I think our health is the only thing that we have that mentality around. So if we get a flat tire on one of our tires, we wouldn't just go and then slash the other three. <laughs> Yeah, but we that's a good it, point. That's a know, good point. We do it. We do it with our health, and so I tell my clients to think of the health as like a bank account. So if you take out two hundred dollars to buy a pair of shoes, you're not going to then take out twenty thousand dollars from your life savings. So if you end up having one bad, when you say one bad meal, one meal that isn't the healthiest choice, then think of that. That's come out of your bank account, but then you're going to the next day put back into your bank account. And using that flexibility. But it's funny, it's our health is the only thing that we have that all or nothing mentality with. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Let's switch gears again and talk about fitness because you're mm-hmm. also a trainer mm-hmm. along with being a nutritionist. So when someone comes to you, uh, I know most of your clients are women. Um, I'm in my, my 50s. I, I'm just looking to achieve optimal fitness. Mm-hmm. What type of uh, fitness regime would you suggest I pursue? Yeah, so for everybody needs to be doing more strength training. More strength training, less cardio. Literally, that's, that's all I will say. You know, it, it's, it's that simple. But I think a lot of, we have this complete misconception around what strength training is and who it's for. And strength training counts as if you and I were just to do 10 bodyweight squats right now. That's still strength training. That is not being in the gym, throwing barbells around and grunting. So for me, a lot of the time when I'm working with my female clients, it's getting them off that cardio treadmill, for pun intended, and getting them into the gym or even at home and lifting some weights, doing that strength and resistance training. It's a great suggestion. And we'll talk a bit about Cygnus um, in a few, but... The biggest shift I saw in my own fitness was when I started doing strength training. Mm-hmm. I added that in. I was doing all hit training, and I found myself my energy level over time decreasing. Right. Um, I was doing a lot of it, which mm-hmm. you know, may have been the issue. But when I added strength training, I noticed a big shift yeah. in my fitness, and, and primarily in my glucose readings, which mm-hmm. I didn't expect. Yeah. But it makes sense because your muscles are your biggest glucose sink in mm-hmm. your body. So the, if you can uh, increase your um, the volume of muscle that you have, that helps to moderate your glucose. Yeah, you've got more sites for that glucose disposal. You've got more energy efficient organs that is going to that are going to use up that glucose and make it, you know, instead of storing it as fat, burning it for fuel. And I think that, you know, people are always looking for a magic, you know, a magic pill. What is going to boost my metabolism? Well, actually, the only thing that is going to boost your metabolism is having more lean muscle mass. The more lean muscle mass you have, the more efficient you are at using your food. Yeah, absolutely. So do you recommend any cardio for your clients or is it all just about strength training? No, I, so here's the thing. I... Steady state cardio, that middle of the road, jogging, slow running is the thing that I say for people to scrap unless they enjoy it. Some of my clients come to me and they say to me, you know, I go out for a run and it's the only time that I get away from my kids and it helps my mental health and I feel de-stressed afterwards and I say, wonderful, go and do it. 
But so many of my clients are strapping on their sneakers and going for a jog or going for a run and hating every second of it. And so if they don't enjoy it, I say, don't do it. There's so many other ways of doing it. I'm such a fan of walking. I think walking is such an underutilized tool. You know, we think, you know, we think back to 70s, 80s, 90s, and we think that for something to be effective, it has to be really hard. No pain, no gain, right? No pain, no gain. And that's pretty much the opposite of that. You know, walking is such an underutilized tool, whether you're going for an hour in the morning, whether you're going for 20 minutes after eating. So for me, it's strength training and then walking. And then if my clients have some extra energy, if really, you know, fat loss is one of their goals, then I might add in some HIIT training a couple of times a week. And true HIIT training you shouldn't be able to do high intensity interval training for longer than about 20 minutes. If you are, you're not doing it right. And it's not true high intensity training. That's so very true. So yeah, I, I zone two, I, I guess is in my own fitness regime is, is critical for me. I found in terms of getting things dialed in. So mm-hmm. my heart rate, uh, in that, that second zone, which could be, um, you know, a vigorous hike. Maybe it's not like a leisurely walk, but yeah. it's, you know, doing a hike that's uh, got a lot of uphill, getting my heart rate slightly elevated. Mm-hmm. That combined with strength training just seems to that's really my, dial things in. Yep. We just moved to, we moved eight minutes down the street from our old house, but there is a 68 acre walking slight hiking trail. And I put on a 20 pound weighted vest and I go out and I do that for an hour in the morning. And it's amazing for my mental health and my physical health. So yeah, when we're talking about walking, we're not talking about a stroll around the shops. I always say to people that the pace that they're looking for is that you should be able to tell someone the time, but not sing them a song. And that's kind of that level of breathlessness that we want. Yeah. So you're, I, I've heard this phrase, instead of killing two birds with one stone, the, the vegan phrase being you're feeding two <laughs> birds with one scone. You, what you're doing here is you're not only getting out, you're getting your heart rate elevated. You're also getting that natural light mm-hmm. on yeah. your eyes during the most crucial time in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and if so, you're lucky enough to be somewhere where I am, where you're in the trees, you're getting that cortisol lowering benefit from you know forest bathing. Um, you know, I wear a weighted vest. That's something that I actually started doing during the pandemic because we were all so sedentary, you know, and I was thinking what's going to, you know, I'm a woman in her forties. I'm really thinking bone density. So I grabbed a weighted vest just to add to my walks. And it's something that I've just kept doing. And I, I love it. I'm getting so many, I'm getting that strength training benefit, all of those little muscles in my ankles and knees, you know, are really getting strengthened because I'm going up and down hills. I'm getting outside, and listen to my podcasts and it's, it's my favorite thing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's another great thing I've, I've, um, discovered with zone two is to combine it with something else that you love. So you made a great point earlier, which is you should find the cardio that you love versus Mm -hmm. something that you want to avoid because you're going to most likely engage in more of something that you love. So the walking great example versus running if you're not a runner. Yeah. But then the other thing was stacking even more on top of that. So if it is zone two, um, it's probably pretty light intensity. So find audiobooks, podcasts that you really yeah. enjoy. Maybe go out and not just feed your body, but feed your mind and learn something new. It's, and, you know, we have so many things going on in our lives these days. So if we can habit stack things, so if we can use that as, you know, for me, I like to do at least 12 hours to 14 hours overnight sometimes you know if I'm eating later I'm waiting for my husband then 
you know, 7am, I haven't had my 12 hours overnight. So I go out, I go out for an hour. So that's increasing my fast. I'm wearing my weighted vest. So that's helping with my bone density and muscle mass. I'm listening to a podcast or an audiobook, So I'm learning something. I'm getting out in nature. I'm getting that daylight. And then for me, I love dogs. So I get to fuss all of the dogs that are on that nature walk as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> so um, when you talk about the 12 hours, you're talking about a time-restricted eating mm. window. Yes. And yeah. Do you do that typically on a daily basis? I do. I typically do at least 12 hours overnight. Um, and then I, I kind of play with that depending on where I am in my menstrual cycle. So for the first two weeks of my cycle, I, my body is a lot more in my follicular phase. My body is a lot more resilient. So I can push my fast to 12 hours, 14 hours and not even think about it. When I'm in the second two weeks of my cycle, my body isn't as resilient. So that's when I go, okay, 12 hours. And if I'm hungry before my walk, I'll eat. I'm not someone who's like, no, it has to be regimented. I do try and listen to my body as well. But at least 12 hours overnight, I find for gut health, for blood sugar balance, um, no one needs to be eating, you know, any sooner than that, I think. So yeah, I'm definitely more on the side of time-restricted eating rather than intermittent fasting. Yeah. And are you, do you find yourself to be an early time restricted eater or later? I'm, I'm early. So I am usually up around five o'clock. That's usually kind of the time that I'm up. I like to finish eating by, ideally it would be earlier, but social commitments. I like to eat with my husband. I usually, we usually have dinner around six, six thirty. So, you know, by 7.30, everything is finished. So for me, dinner usually happens after I work uh, Sorry, breakfast usually happens after I work out. And I do think that I know people like to do longer in the morning and then push it into the evening. But I'm a big believer in eating when it's light out and then not eating when it's dark. Yeah. Kind of yeah. bringing the it circa- circle. Circadian yeah. fasting. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, some of it is it's just common sense. It is. <laughs> To some people. To some people. <laughs> to others, not. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least, I mean, in, in in idea it is, but sometimes practically we lose track of it, I, yeah. I, I would say. And again, it's about having structures and routines, but not being militant with them. So I'm not going to, you know, if I plan to have dinner with my husband and he's late back from work, I'm not going to go, well, I'm just going to eat. Sometimes I do, but you know, if it's a special occasion, I'm not going to go, well, I can't have dinner at 7 PM because I don't eat then it's 80, 90% of the time I do circadian fasting. I'm eating when it's light, not when it's dark, but once, twice a week, if that's not happening, it's not the end of the world. Right. Which I think is a very important lesson. Um, Be kind to yourself, Mm -hmm. give yourself a little bit of latitude. It doesn't have to be, as you said, so regimented. Yeah that you are living with other people, you've got a family. Um, it's important to con- to consider their needs as well. And sometimes you will have to slip a little bit and, and it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And there's other elements of health. So connecting with friends and family and loved ones and joy and sharing joy over food, that's an important element of health as well. So it's, it's finding that balance I think is important. Great. Would love to talk about Cygnos. So you are mm-hmm. using Cygnos right now. I think you've got a patch on. There mm-hmm. it is, your Cygnos <laughs> patch. I would love to know uh, what you discovered yeah. with yourself when you started using Cygnos. So I would say the biggest one for me is how stress affects my blood sugar. 
Yes. That was, again, when we talked at the beginning of this conversation about data creating behavior change, that was a real wake up call for me. I understand the science of stress, you know, the, the physiology of stress affecting our blood sugar. But when I saw it in myself and I'm waking up with really, you know, high for me, fasted blood sugar before I've even eaten anything or drinking coffee, then I'm like, okay, I know I didn't sleep well the night before. And I know that that is being caused by stress. So that hard data for me, I'm in a season of my life when a few things have come up, which are really making me get a handle on my stress and seeing that effect on my blood sugar is one of them. Yeah. So um, when you see that, and I, I agree, I've seen this as well. I never realized it. There, I think the first time I saw it was after putting on a patch. We had this really important meeting. <laughs> the lot was riding on this meeting for the company. Yeah. And I just watched my glucose creeping up as right? the meeting time approached. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't eaten anything yet. I'm yeah. a, a uh, an, an early faster, but um, on this particular day, I hadn't eaten and I'm like, okay, so there's no exogenous glucose coming in. Mm-hmm. What is happening? Yeah. But then I thought to myself, you know what? One of the things that, that uh, CGM and Cygnos does, is it's almost like a stress meter at times. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, a little reminder to yourself, okay, it's time to de-stress. So when you see that now, what do you do? Do you do some breathing techniques or meditation to try and alleviate the stress? Yeah, I think for me it's it's trying not to think about it in the moment but trying to make it part of my overall life because if we 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 know that stressful situations are going to come up and and that's fine that's part of life but if we're responding to every single stressful situation as if it were a life or death occurrence that's when we start to have that dysregulated blood sugar and that dysregulated cortisol So for me, it's really been about regular daily practices to help manage my health and manage my stress rather than in the moment techniques. But for me, in the moment techniques, deep breathing and CBD oil, those are the two, those are the two things that I kind of, and and using some affirmations. I literally, if I'm deep breathing in with faith, out with fear is what I say to myself. Hmm. And that's, that's a nice I, mantra. Yeah, it's it's nice and easy. Um, so I, I think it's more managing it on a daily basis rather than in the moment. I think it's long term versus short term. Yes. And for the long term practices, you mentioned meditation. Mm. So what does your med- meditation practice look like right now? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I've had a meditation practice since I was probably about 19. So on and off over the last 20 years, more off than on, I will say. Um, right now I'm going, it, my meditation practice has been anything from headspace, which I think is something that we all know and use mm-hmm. and is very, I would say, vanilla to what I'm doing right now is I'm doing some of Joe Dispenza's meditations, Dr. Joe Dispenza. So that's all about your, for me, it's about my body's activating my body's own healing processes. Um, I even like to do some hypnotherapy. So I'm in a stage where I'm kind of deep into that meditation, but sometimes it just looks like doing some breathing and listening to headspace. So I think the message for our listeners is fine, just like with exercise, find the thing that you can realize the most relaxation, uh, mindfulness, whatever it is that you find. It could be meditation, it could be walking meditation. So here's another habit to stack exactly um, that you could do to just try and relax and enjoy life a little bit more and not stress so much. 
you know, I think meditation, we need to think of that as it's just about being in the present. It doesn't have to look like you sitting cross-legged and not thinking about anything. You know, meditation should be about, can you be in the present? So if that is going for a walk, if that is dancing, if that is doing the dishes, it's not doing the dishes for me. If it's hanging out with, you know, just, just being present in the moment, you know, for me, like hanging out with my cats, or I think for you, you were talking about listening to music. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting cross-legged, deep breathing, not thinking about anything. It's where you can just fully immerse yourself in the present. Yes. Any other discoveries when you put on Cygnos? Gluten-free pizza makes my blood sugar go up to about 360, which <laughs> way? <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty high. I, so what, so let's yeah. talk about your gluten-free pizza. What, yeah. what is in your gluten-free so pizza? I typically say to people, we don't want to be eating gluten-free products because when something is a gluten-free product, it's typically made with really, really refined flours. They're just not wheat flours. You know, they're potato flours, they're rice flours. They're really, really high in simple carbohydrates and they're really going to spike your blood sugar. So that's not something that I typically have at home a lot as a treat meal. But I think this is where I was last time we spoke. I was in London for my friends. We call it Hindu you call it a bachelorette party. So we had the bachelorette party at one end of the, at the beginning of the trip and then the wedding at the other end of the trip. And it wasn't a conventional wedding. So we had, we went for pizza for the bachelorette party and then there was pizza at the wedding afterwards. So twice I had this gluten-free pizza. There was, uh, there was barely any protein on it. I didn't have any veggies and my kind of normal blood sugar during the day is normally around about 85. And it's by like, literally, I mean, it was quite funny. You know, I was telling my friends what we were doing. We were all watching it. So it spiked my blood sugar all the way. And it would have been interesting to have a friend wearing one as well and seeing what the kind of the, the normal gluten containing pizza looked like, because theirs looked a lot more rustic and looked like it had more fiber and mine had never seen any fiber in its life. It was sheer carbs. Um, so that was, and it was interesting to see how quickly that went down as well for me. So it's not something that I would do all of the time, but it was a fun little experiment to go, okay, my pancreas still works and I'm still producing that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, yeah, giving it and, a workout. And, and for our Cygnos members, um, just as we were saying earlier, when you do see that spike and it's going to happen that, and I've have a number of examples of things I never thought would spike me that spike mm -hmm. me like crazy. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. These things happen. You're not going to die. <laughs> right. Um, just uh, next meal, try and find something that uh, you have more a more moderate glycemic response, and, exactly. and you'll be fine and it's, be back on track. Yeah, it's, it's knowledge is power, and if these spikes are happening occasionally, it's it's not the end of the world by by any means. We just really want to see, you know, is that coming down nice and quickly, and what it, it's into, you know, I knew the gluten-free pizza was going to spike me, but I do have more of a response to fruit than I thought I would. So it's really, you know, knowledge is power. And again, data, hard data, creating behavior change is really what we're thinking about. Yes. I'll give you an example uh, just to bring this full circle is one of the biggest surprises I noticed was I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. So for the first two years on Cygnos, I had the exact same breakfast at the exact same time, measured mm -hmm. out to like a tenth of a gram. Yeah. This is just me. I've got a food OCD. I noticed the nights when I 
got very poor sleep, mm-hmm. I would have like a 30 to 40 milligram per deciliter difference in spike to that exact same food than yeah. a night when I got a great night's sleep. Yeah. And this is, again, talking about optimum health as a moving target. So for you, that breakfast, when you are relaxed, you've had a great night's sleep, all of your blood sugar and hunger hormones are settled overnight, that breakfast is great for you. When you've not had as much sleep, then your body's going to have a totally different response to it. So again, I think it's if you are, you know, let's say you, 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 you're doing the basics of, of great health and blood sugar balance. Now you're starting to go, okay, what does exercise do for my blood sugar? What does stress do for my blood sugar? What does, you know, what different types of working out, what does that do for my blood sugar? So yeah, again, it's, it's this moving target and we have to have some grace with ourselves of knowing that we're a moving target. Yes. This is such a great conversation. I could go on for hours, but I know our <laughs> listeners don't have those hours. So Jenny, if people want to find out more about you, what you do, your practice, yeah. where can they find you? nice and simple website is jenniferhanway.com i'm Jennifer Hanway on instagram and those are the two best places to find me so great to have you such an interesting discussion and we look uh-huh. forward maybe having you back again to talk about some other great topics let's do it again or i'll come and see you in la and get some sunshine there you go <laughs> thank you for joining us on another episode of body signals We hope you enjoyed this show. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Body Signals on your favorite podcast platform. We have a special offer for Body Signal listeners, a 20% discount on Signos. Just go to Signos.com, pick out your plan, and get a CGM in the mail to connect your body in a whole new way. During checkout, you can use the code BODYSIGNALS, that's one word, no spaces, BODYSIGNALS, to get your discount. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.